Well, let's get started by talking about our wellspring as we do every single week. We flip over our binders and we take a look at those wellspring disciplines. You know, we've been learning so much in wellspring about our mixed condition and about one thing for sure, right? One thing is that um, we are being renewed in that progressive sanctification and we need to be reminded of a lot of things. One thing is our wellspring purpose. Let's read that. It's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. You know, from day one in Wellspring, we've been hearing about heart shepherding, haven't we? Way back. You can remember we talked about that the very first day. Well, here's a question I have for you. Okay, so how would you right now, if somebody asked you, how would you describe or explain heart shepherding to someone? How would you do it? You know, one thing I like to uh, think about is I like to, to compare heart shepherding to heart parenting, to parenting, because we can all relate to that, can't we? If you think of being a parent, whether you are one or not, you know that it's a huge responsibility. So no days off, right? You have to be on guard all the time. You have to do it every minute, every hour, every day for many, many years. So now let's make a little mental list, a little checklist. Check, check, check. What are all the things that um, a parent is responsible for? There's a lot, right? Okay, so maybe you're thinking right away. You're checking. You go, oh, well, okay, proper nutrition. That's, that's one. Clothing. Okay, shelter, protection, right? Um, discipline, the right kind of education. Can go on and on. Okay, so have you figured out where I'm going yet with this illustration, right? Because Christian, you and I are children of our Heavenly Father. And uh, we can praise Him our Heavenly Father, that he has given us everything we need to undertake that daunting task of shepherding or parenting our hearts. So let's take a a look at the list on your outline there. It's right there on the review, on your handout. Let's take a look at that and notice how it it mirrors parental concerns we just listed. So I'm going to read these verses to you, and then you can jot down a word or two to help you remember and to reveal what these verses talk about. So let's talk about nutrition, and that is Luke 4.4. And it says, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then there's protection. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. There's proper housing, and that's Psalm 91.1. It says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Clothing. 
Romans 13, 14, says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Then there's education, and that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We know that one. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And finally, we have down there discipline, and that's 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of discipline. Wow, the Bible is thorough, right? It's accurate, right? It's complete. It's the tool that we need in order to live gospel-transformed lives. And you know, just as any child needs consistent ongoing and meaningful times with her parents. So we need consistent, ongoing, and meaningful times with our Heavenly Father, don't we? So wouldn't it be wise for us to step back and assess how we're doing with our heart shepherding or heart parenting, as we can call it? Wouldn't it be wise to ask ourselves questions like, Am I really making sure that I am getting everything I need in order to grow and be strong with my walk with Jesus? Am I being diligent to get all the nutrition, protection, care, shelter, clothing, discipline that I need, that my heart needs, and that can only get from meeting daily with God in his word, am I? Now, I'm not asking these questions to make us feel bad. Instead, you know, I pray that we would use questions like these um, to ask God to reveal in us ways that he is well-pleased and also in ways that we do need to change And we always want to remember Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we've all seen those packages, right? They say, handle with care. Well, as you may recall in the lesson we had about prayer, that we cannot and we should not attempt to shepherd our hearts without prayer, without care, and without prayer. See, prayer is vitally important. It's so important. Look at down at discipline one, the heart. Do you see it? It's the second word in discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So sisters, let's make sure that we haven't just been reading our Bibles to check off the box. You know, I did that for years. But let's make sure that we're carefully and prayerfully and eagerly 
taking our hearts before the word of God daily in order to give ourselves everything we need to know God. So now let's move on to discipline to the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and for the gospel. Okay, so when you think about household, what do you think about? What does the word home mean to you? You know, maybe a more important question I should have asked is, a better question may have been, um, what does God's word say about our home? Because our home most certainly is the place where we can, right, kick off your shoes and put on your comfy sweats, regroup and refresh. But you know, for the Christian, it's much more than that. Because the home is the place where we get to live out the gospel to all who are living in our home and all who visit our home. So focusing on the gospel, here's what it does. It helps us be eager to want to imitate Christ and his sacrificial service. So then the home, it's not just about being yourself and doing whatever you want. It's about being Christ's hands and his feet as we humbly and sacrificially serve out of love. Why? Because of the gospel. Well, today's lesson, ladies, is all about the home. So let's think about these two questions I'm going to ask. How can we effectively live out the gospel in our homes? And how can we intentionally see to it that our lives are truly centered on God and the gospel. So there are two key words, effectively and intentionally. Hmm. Well, here's the answer. Our priority must be a heart that is for God and for the gospel. It must be. Let's move on to discipline three. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within the home, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Some of you may know my husband, Jeff. He's a physical therapist and he works with the elderly. And he has many patients who have Alzheimer's or who have dementia. Well, do you know what a person with Alzheimer's or dementia with memory problems, do you know what they look like? Have you seen them? They oftentimes get agitated they get frightened, they forget what they've just read or what they've just said, they get lost, <laughs> their mind wanders. Sisters, we in the church need to understand that we ourselves suffer from what can be called spiritual dementia. So that's why we need each other to be reminders of the gospel because just like Jeff's patients we ourselves are prone to forget we get agitated don't we <laughs> we get frightened we forget this is not our home right our mind wanders away from the gospel the Bible instructs us over and over again to remember 
Here are just a few examples. Psalm 103.2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Psalm 105.5 says, Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. And finally, Psalm 119.55 says, O Lord, I remember your name in the night that I may keep your law. See, ladies, discipline three is a very intentional discipline. And it is the natural outpouring of the Holy Spirit's work in you, through you, to be a vehicle of his grace in the lives of other sisters in the Lord. So practically speaking, what does this look like? What should I do? What should you do? Well, we should prayerfully hmm, gra uh, grasp hold of the gospel and we should purposefully see to it that what we read in the Bible each day informs our speech and the way that we respond to others throughout the day. Now, we've all seen a sponge, right, that's filled with water, and you poke on it just a little bit. What comes oozing out? Water, right? That's easy. Well, will you be a sponge for me? Will you love me with the gospel? <laughs> will you help me to remember? Will you soak yourselves daily in the word? So that when we get together and I poke you, gospel juices come flowing out of you. Hmm. Will you encourage me when I need it? And will you love me enough to spur me on when I need that? Ladies, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a cowboy with spurs that are wrapped in bubble wrap. Have you? No, you know, spurs are just meant to be uncomfortable enough, right, to get that horse on its way and moving in the right direction. The discomfort is necessary to produce the right results. Will you, by God's grace, love me enough to do that? Will you, by his grace, spur me on towards God and the gospel when I have forgotten and I'm going to try to do the same for you. As together, we step out into the church to shepherd each other toward God and the gospel, even as we minister to those in our household with a heart for God and the gospel. Why? Because we have been prayerfully shepherding our heart toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So we better pray, shouldn't we? Join me, please. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Wellspring. I thank you for this ministry and how it is centered around your word and, Lord, for the tools that it gives us to shepherd our hearts so that we can be equipped to step out into the church. Lord, thank you for this lesson. And I pray that as um, 
as I teach this lesson, Lord, that we all would come with eager hearts, ready to learn and ready to apply what we learn only through your grace and only as you show us bit by bit how we can change and need to change. Lord, let us be glad to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this morning we're going to focus on the home because the home is very much on God's mind, very much. And today we're going to discover what his, his word says about household relationships. We're going to see how discipline one and discipline two are connected and they're intertwined throughout the entire scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, today's lesson, ladies, it's called a survey lesson. We've had those before. And we're going to look at nine categories today that help us see God's heart in scripture for household relationships. Now, as with every survey lesson, we're going to look at the whole Bible. Okay, we're going to cover a lot of ground. You know, we're going to start at the Old Testament and then work our way to the New Testament. Because we want to know how God gradually unfolds his revelation to us. We're going to work our way from the front to the back to get a full sense of his heart for the home. So since we're going to go pretty quickly, um, keep in mind that you're not going to be able to look at every passage that is um, referenced here on your notes. Instead, you know, we're going to um, fly over some and hover over some and get down and land and walk around in some. And uh, you can go home, and if I go too quickly, go home and look up all those verses again, please. So you're ready to roll up your sleeves and get started? Let's start with discipline one. Or I'm sorry, with number one on your outline, the relationship between the heart and household relationships. So this morning, we're going to begin by looking at Mosaic Law. Now, as Christians, we need to remember we're not under Mosaic law. For example, we don't obey the Ten Commandments, the one, uh, for instance, honor your mother and father. You know, we don't obey that because it's in the Ten Commandments. But we do obey it because Jesus taught it. In Matthew 15, Scott Maxwell puts it this way. Here's what he says. Quote, that doesn't mean that it has no value under Mosaic law. It does have value because it reveals God's heart. All of scripture is revelation and all of scripture is profitable and all of scripture in the Old Testament provides examples. But when it comes to understanding what to do in regards to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ. We exalt Christ, and he is greater than Mosaic law. Close quote. So our first stopping point, ladies, is in Exodus 20, where we see what God is revealing to us in Scripture about the connection between the heart and household relationships. So by the time we get to Exodus 12, I'm sorry, verse 12, in Exodus 20, we're right smack dab in the middle of the Ten Commandments. See verse 12? 
It's the fifth commandment. Remember, the first four commandments are vertical, right? They're concerned with Israel's relationship with God. And then the commandments turn and they become more specifically horizontal. And they're focused on the relationship between people. So if you look at Exodus 20, 12, it says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Let's notice that the first human relationship that God deals with is the parent-child relationship. You see that? Specifically, the way children respond to their parents, their fathers and their mothers. Then look at verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. See, again, God is focused on the home, right? He's concerned with husband and wife relationships. And then look at verse 17. God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's households. Okay, let's see what he says about that. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do you notice how Israel was supposed to be very concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household? Notice that? So here we are in the Ten Commandments, and the first four are addressed with Israel's relationship to God. And the very next thing God addresses is the household. Three times in the last six commandments. See, God has very specific expectations for the home. Do you see that as God is giving the Mosaic Law, he's thinking about these basic foundational relationships? What's on God's mind? The home, right? It's the home. Well, all right, friends, let's go to Deuteronomy now. Two books over. We're going to stay here in Deuteronomy for a while. Now, let's remember, Moses led the Egyptians. I'm sorry, he, <laughs> Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. But he rebelled. They rebelled. And they wouldn't go and take possession of the land that God was giving them. So what happened? They wandered through the wilderness for 40 long years. They weren't allowed to go into the land until that generation that rebelled died off. So here we are, 40 years later, and Moses is talking to the children who have now grown up and who were told originally, honor your parents. So here we are at the very end of Moses' life, and he's reteaching them the law prior to their going into the promised land. Well, let's skip over Deuteronomy 4 and go to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And you looked this up in your homework. Now, these verses are called the Shema, and that's from the Hebrew word, meaning to hear and to listen and to obey. As we read, let's look at the verbs. Okay, let's note the verbs and the references to the heart. 
That's, remember, that's the inner person with your mind and your affections and your will. And let's also, let's notice how God wants Israel to show their commitment to him by loving him with all they are. No exceptions. Here we go. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There's discipline one. These words, verse 6, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You know, he's saying that the words of God and your heart are to come into contact with one another. That's discipline one also. And now what does he say next? Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hey, ladies, there's discipline too, right? So in your own words now, how would you restate God's heart for the household? Well, here's one way you could do it. You could say, Israel, everything you do in your houses, everything from lying down when you go to sleep to getting up from sleep, to just walking and talking on the way as you leave your houses and are headed out for the day, the word of God is right there. And as you come home to your houses, the word of God is right there. Your household, Israel, is to be dominated with your concern or by your concern for what? The word of God. So let's be sure that we grasp that inseparable connection that followed right on the heels of love the Lord your God with all your heart. And let's notice how God's intent, ladies, it wasn't just for that generation. See, all along he had in view the coming generations. He's saying, you know what? It isn't just for you. You must teach it to your children. And how do you teach it? You see that word? Diligently. Hmm. And do you see how closely this follows on the heels of caring for your own soul? See, God's heart has always been that we would take care of our own heart. How? With his word. And then what next? that we tell it to the next generation. See, discipline one and discipline two, they're inseparable. So now let's go over to Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. We're going to see another requirement that God places on the older generation. In verses 1 through 3, the Israelites are told that then when they enter the promised land, they're supposed to destroy the inhabitants totally make no treaty with them and show them no mercy so let's look at verse 3 deuteronomy 7 
verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons. Okay, why so radical? Well, let's look at verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. Okay, make an asterisk or a star or something at verse 4. Write it down in your notes because you know what? We're going to get back to that in a few minutes and see how that verse played out in the history of Israel. So let's note the dire consequences of Israel allowing their sons and daughters to marry, intermarry uh, with those of another god. It says, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. So who's responsible for obeying? See, the burden was first on all the adults to obey God by not intermarrying and then to specific adults, to the parents to not allow their children to intermarry. Let's not miss the heart issue behind this burden. Don't miss it. Do you see it? Children get their hearts turned away from God when they get into a marriage relationship with somebody who has another God. See, over and over again, we're seeing this inseparable connection between what Israel does with their hearts and the impact that it has on the next generation. And let's notice also it's a two-way street, right? See, what's going on in our homes does influence our heart in the same way that our heart does influence our homes. We'll see the heart's influence again in our next passage And that's Psalm 78, 1 through 8. And as we read this, we're going to count how many generations are addressed here. Starting at verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come. The praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. So let's count who we have here, okay? So there are first the ancestors, and then secondly, there are the people in that current generation. And then thirdly, the children yet to be born. And then fourthly, their grandchildren. Wow, that's four generations. And finally, we get to verse 7. And that reveals what we are all supposed to tell. 
that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. What's the main concern? The next generation, right? They all must know God. They all must know that he's trustworthy and that they can put their confidence in him and that they can obey him. The Israelites are not to follow after the example of their parents. Remember what they did? They failed to shepherd their hearts. They quickly forgot about God, and they became disloyal to him. Look at what God says about their hearts. God declared that their hearts were, what, stubborn and rebellious. Hmm. Now, even though this passage addresses Israel, we need to know from God's word that God cares about our hearts, right? The impact that we make on the next generation. It's unmistakable. We are all responsible to declare the truths about God to ourselves and to the next generation. All of us. And we're not to separate God's concern for the heart with his concern for the home. Don't separate that. Hearts and homes go together. So let's go to the last book of the Old Testament now, right before Matthew. Turn to the book of Malachi. God is telling Israel what will precede Christ's return. Malachi chapter 4. I'm going to read at verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, God's saying that he's going to come and smite everything, and one of the ways they can be ready is to strengthen their families. See, God's heart is inclined strongly to the home. It's important in his mind. Now, if you would look at Luke 1 sometime, the reference is on your outline. Sometime you can look at that and see where the fulfillment of Malachi 4 is in John the Baptist. See, John, he was to make certain that Israel did not miss the household relationships. And God's heart for the household continues to be displayed in the New Testament. So let's move on now to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to see again how God has this inseparable relationship between the heart and the home. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you, 
and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. See, this is a repeat of the fifth commandment now brought under the authority of Christ for his church. Do you see how Paul addresses our role as children? Obey your parents, right? How? In the Lord. See, children must shepherd their hearts well in the gospel so as to obey and honor parents in a way that honors the Lord with a right heart attitude, inward, and right outward action, like our tone, (laughs) our face, our posture. And then look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents in particular must be faithful with discipline and with instruction in the Lord. Why? Do you see it? So as not to frustrate their children. And all of us, as we impact the next generation, not just our children, our grandchildren, I'm talking kids at church too. We must live out God's word, mustn't we? We must hold out God's word, mustn't we? Why? Well, we know it's the only thing that can give wisdom that leads to salvation. See, the next generation needs the hope of the gospel. Well, our survey now is going to take us five books over to the right, to 1 Timothy 3. And in verses 1 through 3, Paul is writing to instruct uh, Timothy regarding the church. See, it's crucial for the church to have leaders who are qualified to lead and who can set the example for the rest of the body. So let's look at it, shall we? And let's notice how much emphasis is placed on the heart and on the home. See, Paul is showing us that household relationships are a measure of a man's qualifications to lead. Because, ladies, if he's going to be part of what's God doing in the world, what God's doing in the world, especially in the church, how can he not be concerned for his household? See, it's very near and very dear to the heart of God. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. through 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if he's playing leapfrog, as the elders like to say, over his household relationships, why on earth would you put him in charge of the church? If he doesn't know how to shepherd that little flock, that lives right there in his household, he doesn't know how to shepherd the big flock, does he? So here we see the relationship between the heart and the household. God is very concerned to tie them all together tightly. Well, what about us women? 
How does the Bible address the connection between our hearts and our household's relationships? So now let's move on two books over to the right and come to the book of Titus, whose major thrust is on equipping the churches of Crete to be effective Christians. We're already very familiar with Titus 2, 3 through 5, right? But let's look at it again. And let's notice the emphasis this time on the household. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior and not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What's the main concern? Okay, look at the last 10 words. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's the word of God. So here's what we need to see. A woman's faithfulness in her household relationships and in godly character which flows out of a heart that seeks God in his word is of great significance. Why? Because it impacts the way others speak about the word of God. Wow. This is so important. I'm going to repeat it. A woman's faithfulness in her household relationships and in godly character which flows out of a heart that seeks God in his word is of great significance because it impacts the way others speak of the word of God. So let's look at number two. One Old Testament woman who grasped God's heart for the, the family and the home. We're going to begin back in the Old Testament now. We're going to talk about Ruth. See, she's a woman who grasped God's heart for the family and for the home. Her life took place at a time before there was a king in Israel, back when the judges ruled. As a matter of fact, the book of Judges ends with these, these sad words. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, sadly, because there was no submission to the authority of God, people, even priests, did what they thought was right in their own eyes, and thus sin ran rampant. And then, in the midst of this dark history in Israel, we get treated to a very, very virtuous woman named Ruth. She lived in troubled times, and she faces her own terrible grief, and yet she clings to God. In Ruth 1, we find a Jew named Elimelech who takes his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, and they move to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. And then Elimelech dies. And after that, his sons marry Moabite women. And then his sons die. That's hard, huh? Can you imagine what it would be like for Naomi? 
And then when Naomi hears that the famine back home in Israel is over, she decides to go home. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. But before she leaves, she encourages her two daughters-in-law to stay in their own land, in Moab, with their own people, their own language, their own culture. Because who knows, in time, they might find husbands, they might um, have children of their own, right? So Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she accepts the counsel. And you know what? We never hear from her again. But Ruth, what does she do? She clings to God. She's determined to cling to her mother-in-law. Look with me at Ruth 1. 16 through 17, where Ruth makes this bold declaration of faith. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Wow. Do you get the importance of Ruth's decision? See, Ruth didn't want to stay in Moab. She didn't want to go back to those Moabite gods. She declares Naomi's God, Yahweh, the, the one true God, is her God. And now let's read, what does she say next? Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, in Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant being devoted to her mother-in-law. See, Ruth is a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart for the one true God is demonstrated first by her loving, her widowed mother-in-law. Now, let's remember, that's that same mother-in-law who told her to stay in Moab, right, and find other maybe find a husband there and stay with those Moabite gods. And it's the same mother-in-law who, by her own admission, was a very bitter woman. You see that in verse 20. She returns to her home in Bethlehem, and the other women look at her and they go, is this Naomi? They don't recognize her. Naomi says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. See, she's not just bitter. Who's she bitter at? God, right? See, there's a sense of entitlement, kind of like, I deserve better. But this proud, bitter woman is the family that Ruth chooses to love. Even though she was a foreigner, even though she had no guarantees that she would ever marry or have children, her love drove her to Naomi. See, from the book of Ruth, we know that she went on to marry Boaz, and then they have a child named Obed. Does that sound familiar? Obed wound up being somebody's grandpa. You know who's? King David's, right? Yeah. So I wish we could just say, ah, and happy note, close it and go home, but we can't. Sadly, we're now at number three on your outline, Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family and the home. See, there are a number of references listed here, but we're going to focus on the last two. 
and then we'll take a little break. So please turn to 1 Kings 16. We're going to look at Jezebel. And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little context. So after the death of Saul, God made King David, he made David king over Israel, all 12 tribes. And David was succeeded by his son Solomon. And after Solomon, that's when the kingdom was split into two. You have the north and the south. The southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah. And the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. And Israel was plagued with one bad king after the other. And then Jezebel comes along 75 years after the death of Solomon. So we're going to pick up the narrative in 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. Okay, remember that little star I told you about back when we were talking about Deuteronomy 4, 7, 4, where God didn't want the Israelites to allow their children to intermarry because their hearts would be turned away from serving him? So here you have it. Ahab was already so used to idolatry, ladies, he didn't even flinch when deciding to take Jezebel as his wife. She was a foreign, idol-worshipping princess. Dum, da dum, dum, right? <laughs> okay, we're going to see the progression of heart-hardening. Because once Ahab took Jezebel as his wife, what did this wretched king do? 1 Kings 16, 32 through 33. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, scripture tells us what kind of wife Jezebel was. She was a woman who hated God. And she did all she could to eradicate the prophets from the northern kingdom. She was a woman who had murder on her heart and who thought of only doing what would benefit her. See, it's no secret Israel was plagued throughout history with idolatry. But you know what? Usually they gave God some kind of at least lip service, but not Jezebel. See, she wanted to destroy the worship of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, 1 Kings 21:25 says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. See, Jezebel and Ahab were both equally guilty before the Lord. 1 Kings 21 describes Ahab as pouty and temperamental, moody, and egotistical. <laughs> See, he was having his own personal pity party. Look at verse 4. After there was a man named Naboth, and Naboth refused to sell Ahab his, his vineyard. 1 Kings 21.4 So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because the word of Na which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And he, we're talking Ahab, what did he do? He lay down on his bed turned away his face. 
and ate no food. <laughs> right? So what does Jezebel do? She takes matters into her own hands. She schemes and she lies and she finally has Naboth, remember, an innocent man, murdered. Why? So her husband can have a chunk of land, right? A piece of property, real estate. Wow. See, Jezebel had no regard for the ways of God. She had no regard for the home or for the family. And we need to remember, ladies, that Israel was supposed to keep the, the land in the family. It was supposed to be handed down from generation to generation. But this family turned home into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. They have rejected any semblance of God's heart for the household. You know what? There's pervasive rottenness. It stinks. It's spreading. But sadly, it's not over yet. So please turn to 2 Kings 11, where eventually Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter named Athaliah. So let's find out what kind of daughter these two wicked parents produced. Well, now we're going to take our story to the southern kingdom. Athaliah married Jehoram, king of Judah. And I'm going to pick up the narrative in 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3. Athaliah and Jehoram have a son named Ahaziah. And after Ahaziah is killed, his mother, Athaliah, is so zealous to rule as queen mother and control Judah that she, verse 1, rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Yikes! Did I read that correctly? She killed her own grandchildren so that she could sit on the throne. D.A. Carson writes the following about this evil woman, Athaliah. She is the utterly vile mother of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who was killed. One could imagine a lot of different actions that a queen mother might take on learning of the assassination of her son. Athaliah's reaction is kill the entire family. So she commands the palace guard, ensuring that her dead son's children, her grandchildren, are wiped out, except unbeknownst to her, for her infant grandson, Joash, who is saved by an aunt who herself may have been killed, you know, and who secretly hides him with his wet nurse. Thus, Athaliah secures power for herself. Okay, so here we have an account of two women, and they're related to each other. We have one, a wretched grandmother, Athaliah, who will murder her own grandchildren. And then we have the other, a God-fearing aunt, Jehoshaphat, who will risk her own life in order to save her nephew from his grandmother's murderous tyranny. And in doing so, hmm, she spares the Davidic lineage. You know what? It is really easy to be appalled and totally repulsed by Athaliah's wicked behavior. But let's stop for a moment. And let's not miss this fact, ladies. We need to be on guard for our hearts and for our households. For we know 
that apart from God's intervening work in our own lives, we, our own hearts, can become quickly hardened, self-grasping, self-serving, yes, even murderous, as we get angry and frustrated by our roommates, our children, our husbands, our parents, our guests, other family members, really anyone in our households who gets in the way of our reigning as queen mother in our own homes as we think, you know what, this is my roost to rule. Think about that for a minute. Let's remember, friends, we came in the world with the very same sinful heart that they had, and that is why we must guard our hearts and lay them bare before the word of God and plead with a heart for our households that matches God's so that we can carry the same burden and the same concern for the home that he has. See, ladies, the fact is we will impact our homes. The question is, how? How? So let's take a little break, um, just a real quick one, please. We'll come back in, in about three minutes. Thank you. Let's get started again. Let's review what we've done. We started out by looking at the connection between the heart and household relationships in Scripture. And then we saw the way Ruth's heart for God impacted her household in a beautiful way. And now we've just seen the destructive uh, and how rotten it is when you have rejection of God's heart for the household. So now let's move on. We're at number four on our outline on page three, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. So context-wise, we're back on the plains in Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. So this is just 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt, long before they had a king. What is the dire warning when life is good, when we're living on easy street, when nobody is rocking our boat? Let's find out. Let's read Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, and find out what Moses is warning them about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and cisterns, hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which, by the way, you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied then. Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20, it's full of words of caution and warning and heart shepherding. So we're going to turn there and begin reading in verse 10, 8, 10. And it says, 
When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And here it is. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding. Okay, what's the danger, ladies? What happens to the heart that is not properly guarded? Look at verse 14. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, when we're in a comfortable condition and when things are going well, that is the time to be aware, be mindful of God's warnings because otherwise we might deceive ourselves. Look with me at verse 17. Otherwise you may say, my power and strength of my hands has given me this wealth, has made me this wealth. See, Christian, we must understand that the household, the very place of blessing, can be the exact same place that forgets that it is God who is the blessing giver. See, it's very easy to forget God in the home. But thankfully, in Christ, the household can become a platform for impacting everyone else in the household with the gospel. See, the next generation needs to hear us talking often about how grateful we are for God's provision. And please hear me, because I'm not talking about the provision of stuff right? If we don't cultivate hearts of thankfulness for the gospel, we might find ourselves living as if our greatest treasures and our greatest blessings are what belong to us instead of the treasure of us belonging to God. We just could miss that. Let's move on to number five, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. Now we're going to go to Acts chapter 16. You can read Acts chapter 10 on your own about Cornelius, and you can read how Cornelius brings the gospel and his household together. Now in Acts 16 verse 13, Paul makes his way to Philippi on his second missionary journey. Starting in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household had been baptized, verse 15, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So what's happening here? See, Lydia had her heart opened by the Lord, and that made a huge impact on her whole household. They were all baptized 
See, Lydia brings the gospel and her household together. Now look down at verse 29, and we'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. And here's the background. There's a big uprising in Philippi. And beginning in Acts 16, 19, and Paul and Silas get thrown in jail. And there they are at night singing. And we know the story, don't we? The earthquakes and everybody's chains are unfastened. And the Roman guard is drawing his sword, just ready to kill himself because he knows he's going to be killed for letting the prisoners escape. But Paul and Silas cry out, no, stop, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Reading in Acts 16, 29, he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord. And they said, Believe in the Lord, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And they took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household, who had heard and believed and were saved. See how the jailer brings the gospel and his household together. They're all saved and baptized. Verse 34, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So there they are, their first small group meeting right there. They're rejoicing greatly in their salvation. See, notice the impact, ladies, that just one person made on the household. See, in all these instances, the household is the first place that an impact is made. Sisters, God desires to use us in the same way. He desires to have us bring the gospel and our households together each and every day. And how, how do we do this effectively? Well, first and foremost, we must make sure that we're marinating in gospel truths daily. <clears throat> So that we become the hands and feet of Christ for the household. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we love his word. Well, let's head over. We're on number six. Let's head over to 2 Timothy 3. And as you're turning there, I want you to ask yourself this question. Okay, since there's such a link between the heart and the home, should it be any surprise that the home is a place of constant attack by the enemy? Should it be any surprise? Second Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down by their sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy 3.5, avoid such men as these. Paul tells Timothy that they creep into households and capture weak women. Sisters, this is the terminology you would use for a thief, right? A crook, a villain, someone creeping around, a real creep, right? <laughs> of course, we women, oh, we're not so gullible as to open our doors to a salesman in a cheap overcoat selling lies and deception and ungodliness. Oh, you know, the deceiver is much more clever than that, right? Because if that happened, what would we do? Lock the door, slam the doors in his face, lock them tight and say, no, I will never allow that to come into my house. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. No way. Right? But let's look at 2 Timothy 3, starting in the middle of verse 6. What does it say about these weak women? They are weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, evidently, there are women in these households, they don't know how the gospel addresses their sin because they're still weighed down by their sin. Hmm. They don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones their impulses, their desires, and changes them for godly desires. They weren't equipped well with the gospel to know how to deal with those sinful desires. And get this, they're always learning something, right? But it's not heart-shepherding to the word of God to get the knowledge of the truth. So what happens? They're vulnerable to attack. You see the warning? We have to be vigilant against attacks on our home because they often come disguised to look benign and harmless. You might want to write down 2 Corinthians 11.13 as a reference to look up later. Here Paul warns, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. See, sisters, we need to be on guard for our households. You know, a lot of us have that welcome mat in front of our doors, right? Let's be careful what we're welcoming in shall we? We need to use the word of God to evaluate everything we're opening our doors to and saying, come on in, make yourself at home, right? We need to use the word of God to scrutinize everything we read, everything we listen to on TV, the radio, internet, etc. We need to put it all under the authority of the Bible. Let's not be fooled by something or someone that has that label Christian in front of it. 
We need to do our due diligence. And the only way we can be equipped to do that rightly is by living out discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. See, the world is a pleasure-seeking, pleasure-worshipping world. And unfortunately, we're often all too eager to follow right along and not realizing that in doing so, we're missing it. We're missing the ultimate pleasures that are found in knowing and obeying our God. That's why Psalm 1611 is listed on your outline. Don't turn there, I'll read it for you. It says, you will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. See, being disciplined in the Wellspring Disciplines helps us avoid being weak women. Being disciplined in the disciplines helps us develop our biblical biceps so that we are women who prayerfully shepherd our hearts. How? Toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Why? Because the word of God reveals the path of life. That's why we spend so much time on discipline one. Because if we're not women who get discipline one, if we don't shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use the gospel to fuel our repentance and to help us grow in holiness, we pose a threat to our households and to the church and to the ministry of the gospel. See, we're vulnerable to believing lies and to drinking in the world's Kool-Aid and then passing it along to those closest to us. We've got to be on guard against attack. But you know what? I have good news. When we spend time worshiping God and basking in his word, we will experience abundant joy and eternal pleasures as we unfold the riches of his glorious grace. And we will become aware of our sin and we will desire to quickly repent of it only after exposing our hearts to him through his word. When we're clothed rightly in humility and dependence on Christ, we can be instruments in the hands of our mighty God. And we can minister effectively to those in our household and to the church. But you know what? Here's another warning. We have to be on guard against exalting the household above the gospel. So let's turn to Matthew 10, 34 through 39. We're on number seven. The family home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Christian, if I asked you what is, the more, what is more important than our identity as women, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, grandmothers, you fill in the blank, what would you say? What's more important that, than our identity in that? Well, the answer is our identity in Christ. There are many verses for you to look up on your own this week, and I'm going to recap the main idea for us here. Our identity in Christ is who we are first and foremost, and then 
Everything else falls under that identity, including our families. Jesus makes a strong point that the gospel of the kingdom is first, and everything else is second, including our family. You come follow me. That's his point in Matthew 10, 34 through 39. See, first one person in the household comes to Christ, and then they're called to take the gospel to the family. And sometimes what we see in the New Testament is that the whole family comes to Christ, right? We saw that in Cornelius, Lydia, and the Philippian jailer, hooray, praise the Lord. But Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. See, when we bring the gospel to our family, we might actually find that members in our household become our enemies. Hmm. And if the family begins to stand in, in the way of the gospel, what must that believer do? Hmm. That believer must follow Christ and not the family. And this is important. Even while she stays in that family, seeking to display the changes that Christ has made in her as she loves her family and serves and forgives. I need to keep reminding myself my identity is in Christ and in no one and in nothing else. That is why I can love and esteem and serve those closest to me regardless of their reactions, right? Because of the gospel's impact on my life. Do you see how Jesus helps us put our household relationships in their proper connection with our kingdom identity? Let's look at Matthew 12. Here we read that Jesus is with his disciples. He's gone days without eating, and his family comes looking for him, thinking that he's lost his mind. You know what? They're coming to rescue Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he finds out his family's outside? Verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and mother. See, Jesus is helping us understand the household relationships in their proper relationship with our kingdom identity. Okay, so what practical difference does this make? See, getting the direction is vital. It's got to be. So important. See, if I put my household identity first and then my identity of Christ underneath that, what might you hear me saying? Oh, well, that's just the way I was raised. Or my family always argues we're Irish, we're Italian. Come on. You know, my dad, he never praised me. Mm -mm. But when I put my household relationship under my identity with Christ, then it's Christ's work in me that gets brought into the household and not vice versa. See, our identity in Christ is bigger than our household and our family identity, and that needs to be the direction of our influence. That needs to be. So let's move on quickly to number eight. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the household. 
Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 is our next stopping point. See, whether you're married or not, your understanding of biblical marriage is key to helping you be a strong Christian woman and not that foolish, weak woman. Our culture fights hard, it does, to make a mockery of Christian marriage. And so it's our responsibility to see the beauty of the gospel portrayed in Christian marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But the church, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. See, when we think of marriage, we're to think of Christ and the church. See, married or not, we all need to be the kind of women who treasure and support and build up marriages in the way we think about marriage and talk about marriage and the way we respond to marriage. See, understanding submission changes it from that dreaded word to that beautiful word picture of how Christ again and again submitted himself to the will of the Father. Just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord, and wives are to submit themselves to the leadership of their husbands. Believers, we are to submit to Christ in everything because of all that he's done for us through his shed blood on the cross. And that is why rehearsing gospel truths is so good for us. So if you have a husband, your husband is your leader. And at those times when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, guess what? We can still follow him. We can. Why? Because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy, right? He's sovereign and he's good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands and where we can encourage each other to do likewise. And so finally, let's move on to the last one, number nine, a New Testament model of marriage. Well, Priscilla and Aquila, oh, they had a great New Testament model marriage. You can read on your own about this dynamic duo who partnered in the gospel with Paul, helping to support him in their tent making. Later, in Acts 18, they meet Apollos, and he was incomplete in the view of his gospel because he only knew about John the Baptist. But Priscilla and Aquila were so useful for the gospel because they were able to help this brother in his deficient doctrine. Priscilla was right there with her husband, helping equip Apollos with the more accurate understanding of the way of God. Now, Apollos was set out, and he was useful for the gospel. Now, we see Priscilla and Aquila again in Romans 16, 3 through 5. Paul gives thanks for the many Christians he knows, and Priscilla and Aquila are among them. He says they even risked their necks for the gospel. That is an impressive marriage. And that's what we want, we want our marriages to be. So let's wrap up. Wow, you know what? We made it. Whoa, that was a lot, right? 
We made it. We reached the end of our survey, all those nine categories that helped us see God's heart for scripture in household relationships. All right, how would you summarize what we've seen thus far? Hmm. Well, we've seen the woman that loves God places a priority on the spiritual influence of her household. We saw that with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's why we put discipline two right after discipline one. We just can't get past it. There's no room to try to wriggle around that. We've seen that it's our responsibility to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our households. It's our responsibility to use the gospel to guard and to protect our households. And it's our responsibility to root out false thinking or any thinking that is devoid of the gospel that could come in and deceive us and poison our families. Our home should be a place where God would love to bring people to himself, people who live there and people who come visit there. Don't we want our households to be like that? Don't we want to encourage friends and children to have homes like that? A place where he would love to work and to bring others to Christ? Hmm. Yeah, but it's also a little overwhelming, isn't it? So let's not get discouraged because we need to remember our hope. It's not here. It's not in ourselves. Where's our hope? in God, right? It's on his grace that he lavishes upon us. We need to remember that that grace, that's the same grace that saves us. It's the same grace that sanctifies us. It's the same grace that restores what's been torn down. Praise God. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you that you care so much for the home. Your heart is for the household, that we bring the gospel and the household together. Lord, help us to do that. We thank you for the many ways you have been helping us. And we pray that if there are ways that we need to improve, repent, learn, Lord, that you would uh, give us joy as we submit to you. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.